Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you, and welcome back to you, Monsieur. Thank you, Monsieur. That's a very important initiative. Although I'm not sure what he says, that the effect will be felt for a long time, but it uh, well, he was... is a... Uh, uh, had a very great resonance. Well, I'm going right? to I'm going to I'm going to comment on that if you don't mind because I, I learned this uh, the first day we were there at the Jewish Quarter, just speaking to people randomly. Uh, I think what he meant was as follows: you know, when when things go um, in a negative fashion, unfortunately, and uh, in Israel, and people, uh, our brothers and sisters in Israel, are you know in a very tense situation, as uh, one could describe the situation today, frankly. Um, when they get solidarity visits from anywhere in the world, including North America, maybe especially North America. They expect it. They expect it. When you walk in, and you know this firsthand, you walk in the streets of Jerusalem and say, yeah, I'm here just to, you know, you're the shopkeeper, you're the guy in the street, you're the cab driver, we're here just to express our brotherhood and solidarity. They get it, and they've seen it a million times. When we're in the Jewish quarter in France, in Paris, telling people we are here just to give you strength, just to, you know, bring this message, they are shocked. They are, they, they, outside of Israel, what other Jewish community gets that type of treatment? ever feels that. So I think that's what the rabbi meant, that, that this mm-hmm. gesture of coming together, celebrating oh, together. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I know from our experience and our going when the Jews of Paris were under siege in the past and after the Toulouse incident, and we keep in touch regularly with them, that's absolutely right. And so people understand when we go, sometimes on, immediately when there's a crisis, it's because that's when people need you. They need to see you not just during the good times, but when things are tough and, and visits uh, slow down, and most of all applies to Israel. Oh, 100%, 100%, 100%. It was so interesting. I'm checking out of the hotel, and I asked just out of curiosity, you know, what are the reservations like for the rest of the month? You'd figure, you know, it's holiday season. People are heading. She says to me, you cannot imagine, sir, how many people have canceled. I've never seen anything like this in my life. And I said, wow, in Israel, we've seen this so many times. Not that it makes it any easier, obviously. But this is, and this is unfortunately, and again, I'm not here to promote tourism to Paris, but unfortunately, this is where terrorism does win, right? We know that the, we know in the end, the good guys are going to win, and the one above is watching over us to make sure that happens. But this is the collateral damage that, you know, the, the, the smaller victories that unfortunately these terrorists have because these activities are noteworthy. Absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's one of the main targets because tourism, beyond the economic impact, it's the psychological impact. It's the secondary and tertiary impact. It's the people who work in the industry and those who supply to the industry and those who do the support work for those who supply in the industry. It has a ripple effect in the whole economy, and it's the psychological impact of seeing empty stores. We know in New York when you see stores closing down in periods of economic downturn, how that impacts your whole impression of the city and the mood in the city, let alone crime and other things. No com- no question about it. And the other thing i got to mention, the balance. And again, because of the history and because of the great pride, and you know Europe is different than other areas of the world, something we, we are not used to, and I'm only now a drop more used to. Uh, the, the great pride that the Jewish community has in both being French and Jewish, right? Two different things fusing together. And it's just it, it is so hard now for the common person there to continue to strike that balance. They are feeling so much less French because of the situation there, and we'll speak about the politics in a minute. And, of course, they're being pulled in other directions to leave, to go to Israel. Other, So it's like at one point you're getting this strong message about how incredible this community is, and that's why we went to celebrate the Jewish community of Paris. And, again, on the other side, 
you're feeling the alienation that they are feeling from you know their French brethren, so to speak. It is such a difficult balance for them to keep over there. I don't think that they're being pulled, meaning that people are there encouraging them. I think they're being pushed into a large degree to think about the future and you know what place they will have in France in a few years as the numbers keep shifting and as the crime and a lot of it unreported and, and we have relatives and others who who have uh, gone through the transition from moving from one place to the other it within uh, Paris uh, the greater Paris and moving into the city only to be accosted by the same anti-semitic manifestation at the school that they went to yeah. um there is a, there is, and this is a concern that is growing across Europe. Yeah, no question about it. And then, of course, you know what to do. I, I, as I'm listening to Jew and non-Jew speak to us about the situation there, I say to myself, my mother left Germany in 1938, and that was uh, her family's very smart decision, as we know. And that well, my mother left in 38 also from Germany, but I think, you know, the the situation. We never draw comparisons to show out different, but you have to look at the motivating factors. You look at the trends. You look at, at things, and you see very disturbing signs that remind us of events in the past and should be a warning to us about events today. And it's not because we're trying to wrap around, and it's not depressing. You know, how many years ago I said that there's no f- future for Jews in Europe. Just from a demographic period by a point of view, you just look at the numbers. You can't look at anything else to understand what the differential in the birth rates are and in the age dispersion. And yeah. now you added a million people to, to, to Germany alone yeah. whose birth rate will be double, maybe triple that of the native German population, that the, the uh, population disparity will continue to grow. And mm-hmm. this, this makes not because the, those people are, are, you can't live with them, but because of the dislocation, because they're not being integrated in society, and the younger members are being radicalized. Yeah. And a significant, you know, studies done of this, these migrant populations show that a significant percentage of those coming from Syria, et cetera, bear anti-Semitic attitudes, and uh, certainly anti-Israel attitudes. Which led, uh, because of the elections this week uh, in France, which led to someone say to me, you know, as a Jew, I feel so much more alienated from both sides. On one side, the pro-Islamic or the Islamic uh, sympathizing side, however you want to put it, and then on the other end of the spectrum, of course, the extreme right, who had quite a victory this week, wouldn't you say? Uh, Well, the extreme right uh, had uh, important victories, and in, in a number of places they are moving towards elections where the reaction to the immigration issue and to the economic conditions could yield uh, a growing uh, influence of the right. Le Pen won in some of the local elections. Right, that was the one but, that was most significant to them. And and yet, you, it, people don't know that, that for a while already, Le Pen has headed a far-right coalition within the European Parliament that's almost 25% of the seats. Wow. And the the um, possibility now for the first time that, that she could actually become a serious candidate or whatever, uh, in, you know, it's, it's still speculative. But that is being taken with much greater seriousness. No question about that. Um, and, and one of our commenters, 
I guess because it's Erev Shabbos Hanukkah, people get into a mood like this. Uh, one of our commenters on the app says, world events are so depressing, I have no question for Malcolm, just hoping for inspiration. That led me, as a follow-up to what we discussed last week, to mention about this pot shard that they're talking about from the Byzantine era that has an image of a Hanukkah, of a, or I should say of a menorah of the Beit HaMikdash on it. I'm sure you saw that story, and I just I always feel the need to toss that in, especially as we start the show with what might be more depressing news. Well, I just want to tell you, you know, that, that there were several discoveries, and we don't always have time to talk about it. Right. But to me, I think it's the most important news that we can communicate. There, there was a group of uh, high school students who were in um, Adulam Park just now, and they were from the Andasayim Herzliya High School, and they found three coins this past week minted during the rule of King Alexander Janaeus, who was a Hashmanoi king in the first century BCE. They were just walking there, and this, they should now find those coins. Sitting there for how many, for, for 2,000 years plus, and now Dafke would come to, to, to think. So if people don't understand that there is a message that they found for the first time the seal of, uh, uh, of King Hezkiahu, 2,700 years old. It's from the time of Shlomo Melech, and and it, it was it's the first time ever such a thing was found at an archaeological excavation. If you want to turn your kids on, explain to them what the significance, and, and not only that, the, the thing itself bears um, uh, certain designs, and it's too complicated to go into, and I'm certainly not... Uh, an archaeological expert, but believe yeah, at this point you're pretty close to it. <laughs> and and he, you know that that uh, I mean this was a descendant of of David Hamelach, he, he of King David. It's mentioned in in uh, Malachim Beis and Kings two in Yeshayahu. Uh, it's mentioned in Chronicles, uh, and to, to see and it says on the coin Chizkiyahu that it belongs to Chizkiyahu of the seal, not the coin. Uh, Bula, right. son of Ahaz, king of, of uh, Judah. So what, what more do people want? The president of Israel heard about it, ran there, because he wanted to uh, come and see it. And this, you know, follows on the discovery of Akra, the fortress, which is central to the Hanukkah story, discovered in the city of David in the Givati parking lot excavation, where everybody knows in that little parking lot, so much of Jewish history has been uncovered. Such amazing things, some of which are not public yet. Man, this is, if, if anybody doesn't get this message, I, I, they are blind. That is for sure. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org, and of course on the NSN app. Big thank you to our friends at OnlySimchas.com for highlighting all of our uh, material over the last week uh, as part of their amazing brand new news section. A big thank you to our friends at JewishWorldReview.com. You can check out their incredible uh, number of articles on these and so many other topics when you go to their website before Shabbos and print them out and enjoy. Uh, We should mention that uh, according to the news this morning, an Arab motorist attempted to ram his vehicle into an IDF sold into IDF soldiers conducting security checks at the Hilchul Junction near Hebron on Friday. He was shot and killed at the scene. No Israelis wounded. Beforehand, a gunman fired shots toward Israeli security forces at the Golboa crossing between Northern West Bank and Israel on Friday. The attacker approached a checkpoint, fired the shots from several dozen meters. 
using a long-barreled firearm. I mention this, Malcolm, because, um, and unfortunately too many people predicted this, uh, certainly we here outside of Israel, but, it, it, but to an extent I think you would agree, in Israel itself, uh, they have gotten uh, used to and immune to these daily attacks. And I think it's important for us, especially if we speak only once a week, that we point out what's going on in Israel and just how these attacks continue. And I, again, I know that sometimes I you know, throw my hands up as I ask the question about what Israel and its authorities can do, but I just, and then I guess it's not our role here to discuss that or figure out their security concerns and their security actions. But I just, I feel the need to remind everybody that our brothers and sisters in Israel continue to go through all this tension on a daily basis. Well, I'm sure everybody by now reads the dailyalert.org, and we continue in there to put a summary of the attacks, that people not become accustomed to it and not think that this is the way it should be or it has to be, and to remind them that there are people, victims, all the time. We don't read about them unless they're, God forbid, uh, you know, uh, fatalities or yeah. there's, you know, really serious injuries. But the, the attempts and the fact that you have uh, several things each day, uh, you know, there, there was these four soldiers who, who were wounded in the car ramming. That was uh, Wednesday. Pardon me? Wednesday, I think, right? On, on was it Wednesday? Thursday, I'm sorry. Thursday. Thursday. And uh, and then a, a, another car ramming with an individual uh, in um, uh, an attack also in the, in Udun Shomron, and you had uh, uh, others near Hebron. So you do have attempts going on. Thank God the military is now deployed and, and being very, very effective and taking out the targets uh, when they pose these threats. But it's, you're right, we cannot become uh, regularized. And we see that, that the uh, Abbas's incitement continues, that at the meeting that they had of uh, you know, the Palestinian um, council, uh, that, that he, you know, he continues to resign, and he talks all about uh, things, but he continues the attacks, and he continues the line about Al-Aqsa being under siege, which is being cited by the people carrying out these attacks. They're not doing it because of settlements. No one mentions it. They're doing it, they say, because they're there to defend Al-Aqsa because it's under siege and the Israelis are trying to do things, which we all know is not true. You know that they caught 4,000 dolls wearing kafiyas being trying to be smuggled in to, to Israel to, to, the, to the territories where the faces are covered and they're holding rocks. That they're teaching little children that this is the model. And uh, there are some that were even worse, from what I understand. But, but they, they talk about the constant attempts to bring in the, these kind of things as part of their propaganda war that people, you know, don't follow. And, and, and at the same time, we see what's happening in Gaza, where, where uh, Hamas is allowing people to go back to, to carry out attacks near the border. And Hamas and, and Islamic uh, um, IS are, are actually meeting and have come up with common uh, strategies to smuggle, they smuggle uh, wounded uh, people from IS, from the Sinai, into Gaza. They smuggle money and weapons out, and, and through Egypt, IS helps Hamas smuggle uh, large amounts of money, but also weapons, and they help get weapons into the Sinai. So you see it coming together of the terrorist elements, and the true nature comes uh, comes out clearly, and, and, and as they said, that they had a planned an attack against, they wrote in, in the war during 2014, 
and that 60 terrorists were, in fact, I mean, it was confirmed. We discussed it at the time because there were reports to that effect. But here you have now military uh, officials coming out and, and verifying what the real intent was at the time. It's funny because, you know, to, to many of us, th- there's always been an alliance between Hamas, ISIS, and, you know, anybody else you want to throw into the group. But as you always remind us, they don't always have a common enemy, and they don't, they don't always have common goals, although to us it always seems it is one common goal. That's right. And while they can be Sunni Shiite and have a lot of other differences, different backers, they have uh, common goals and aspirations when it comes to Israel. Hey, I read that the uh, UN had its first international day for victims of genocide. That happened for the first time, right? Do you know if the, do you know if the Jewish world was acknowledged on that day? I'm just curious, like, because I know that you're sometimes uh, either supportive or against some of these ceremonial things that happened at the UN. you have any idea if it was even acknowledged about the, the Jewish contribution to being victims of genocide over the centuries? And that the word genocide was an invention of a Jewish man, Lampkin. Um, no, I did not. And uh, there was an important day there. That was the, the commemoration of the 850,000 at least Jews who were made refugees, reminding them that there's another refugee uh, population. And we had a really very meaningful uh, program. Minister Gamliel came, and of course, Ambassador Danny Danone. And I had the privilege to speak there. And, and uh, it, Oh, that was the one right before Hanukkah, right? Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a forgotten population, uh, and one the U.N. Um, is sort of incongruous doing it at the U.N., which certainly doesn't recognize and only talks about one Jewish population. Right. Hey, some people are getting frustrated with Donald Trump, even some people in the Jewish community who are very enthusiastic about him. Uh, what do you think of his statements regarding people from Islamic countries coming to the United States? And what do you think of the fact that he canceled his trip to Israel? Look, I think it was uh, probably better for both. Uh, Netanyahu came out against what uh, he said, uh, but did say that you know he, earlier that he would meet any presidential candidate that came and right. would not uh, renege on his uh, the commitment to meet with uh, Trump. Uh, I think he handled it uh, as best he could in that circle. You know, it's an impossible circumstance to be in, but he I thought he handled his response to it was appropriate and. Uh, you know, part of the problem is that the, the controversy that is engendered by his comments then ups, uh, obscures and, and diverts attention from the real crisis, the real issue yeah. of the ISIS people on the move, the people coming into the United States and all over, carrying passports, the movement. And, you know, we were given to, to believe that ISIS's recruitment uh, has suffered. And, in fact, their number doubled in the past year, according wow. to, to an extensive study by the Sufan Group. And most of them are coming from places like Tunisia, Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, Turkey, Jordan. Uh, but you're still getting from Europe. The number of Europeans supposedly doubled, even though the recruitment has uh, slowed down because of the, the more difficulties they have in getting through in Turkey. But uh, since June of of, of, 19, for, uh, of 2014, you've had this very uh, significant increase, and the biggest is from Russia and Central Asia, you have a 300% increase in the number of recruits, these young people coming. And the United States Intelligence did a study at the request of the White House, and it said that, that ISIS will spread worldwide, and unless that they had suffered big losses in Iraq and Syria, uh, they, that they, the progression around the world will increase as well. So while they suffered losses, and while they, you know, they're being bombed, they're not being defeated, and they have moved, as I reported 
I think last week or may have that they've opened up in Sertin, Libya, with five thousand right. people have gone there from ISIS, and they and this is on the Mediterranean. It's the closest points to Europe. They have oil income that they can they uh, derive from there. They have other benefits, but also it's a great staging ground. So no one should write them off and and believe uh, uh, you know. In the city of Ramadi, where all this fighting that we heard this week and over a long period for years, ISIS has a total of three to four hundred people holding this provincial capital, versus you know perhaps ten thousand Iraqi government forces who are trying to un- to unseat them, and they've had successes. The Iraqis have had some successes. U.S. is backing them. You have U.S. experts there, but they have they're holding it with three to four hundred people, and so you don't need such big numbers for them to succeed. Very scary out there. That's for sure. Israel's advanced Arrow 3 anti-ballistic missile system, according to the New York Times, intercepted a target on Thursday in a region of space just outside the Earth's atmosphere in the first successful test of its kind. The system, jointly developed by the government-owned Israel Aerospace Industries and its subsidiaries and the American Boeing Company, is not yet operational. Now, you have described to us in the past the different Arrow missiles and the different missile systems that Israel has implemented and why these are so important in terms of the security of the state of Israel and, I would guess, any freedom-loving country. Uh, what is so significant about this? What is so different or so advanced about this that it's made the news? The Arrow 3 had a successful uh, missile in, in, in interception, which means that they shoot up a target and it knocked it out. Right. And what's important is that this system targets uh, ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles. And what it does is that it hits it outside the atmosphere, but near the launch site. So if these things carry chemical, biological, or even nuclear warheads, these, the missiles that are being launched, they want them to explode nearer and punish the people in, in where it's being launched from and not the target area when you disperse those, those uh, biological or chemical or even uh, obviously a nuclear uh, device uh, and explode the rocket over populated areas, obviously it's going to cause significant damage. So the Arrow 3 is trained to to hit it at the beginning. You know, a missile flies on an arc to hit it at the beginning, closest to the launch site. And, right. and the, the successful test is very important, and Israel is moving ahead. And you know that I know Gulf, uh, some of the Gulf Arab countries want to buy Iron Dome and some of the, the missile systems. This is very important for the U.S. They work together to joint development of the total multi-layer uh, for short-range, medium-range, and long-range uh, missiles. Uh, and remember that Iran doesn't need ballistic missiles into continental ballistic missiles to hit Israel. So this is a threat to the U.S., and it's, it's, uh, it's a very important uh, tool in, in the arsenal. And we see that the Russians and the, the uh, Iranians are, you know, developing still and launched a missile last week, uh, this week, this past week, uh, and it's acknowledged by some, though they say they haven't final confirmation, but it was near the Pakistani border. This is the second time in violation of U.N. resolutions, still no punishment for the first time, which is what led to the second time. And the, the significance of this in terms of how the region uh, sees it, our determination to force Iran to adhere to the group, the report that came out from the IEA, this all-important report that we have discussed uh, 
December 15th, will lead now to the release of the money, and they will say that they are in compliance, even though they did not cooperate the way they should, that we did not get the PMD, past military developments, which is the base, because if you know what they did before, then you can judge where they've gone and if they are still working at it. If you don't know where they started, then you can't do that. And the um, and I know that people's eyes glaze over when glaze over when you start talking about it. But these this is what this whole battle was about. This is what we're seeing now is um, the, the first steps, and then people will say, "Well, how did we get to this?" And all of a sudden, they're going to announce that they're in compliance or it's implementation day, which means that the money, although money has been flowing uh, in smaller amounts, that the big money will start to flow in a in a short period of time, and then also other restrictions um, get lifted. And rather than putting the pressure on Iran, and especially after they do this blatant act, slapping everybody in the face with a missile launch, a second missile launch, we're moving ahead and overlooking some of the apparent violations and and uh, uh, non-cooperation, <laughs> even though they promised all of these things. I'm, la- I'm laughing only because it's amazing how, at the same time, that the U.S. is really easing restrictions, that's one way to sum up the whole situation when it comes to the Iran deal, is easing restrictions on them and allowing them to, to build, to organize, to you know fire test missiles, etc. At the same time, they're funding, the U.S. is helping fund Arrow 3 and other, you know, uh, and other systems of defense against these very same missiles. It's, like, it's, it's, it's ridiculous when you think about it, that in one way they are strengthening Iran, and the other way, because they're strengthening Iran, they have to develop you know, systems to make sure to be able to defeat Iran if they you know, use those missiles against us. You notice that there's a contradiction? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Astute observer again of the... By the way, what happens in Iran when they see the Arrow 3 and read the same article I read? Do they then start to develop an even more sophisticated missile? And they look for ways to bypass it, just as Israel is sending people to Greece to train... Uh, in Greek territory uh, right. against the newly installed S-300 in Iran, and which is the anti-missile defense system that Russia is installing in Iran, which is very sophisticated and advanced, and the S-400, which is even more advanced, that they put into Syria because it's protecting also their aircraft, and you know they took over another uh, Air Force base. Your homes not, did not build a new one, which was the initial report, but they took over an existing one, and already on it, supposedly there's an Iranian squadron based there, although there are reports that Iran is, is pulling out some of its key officers because of the losses that they suffered. And um, there were estimates at one time of 7,000 troops. Now the estimates are below 2,000, uh, plus military advisors because of the losses they suffered. But yes, you know, every time somebody has a new advance, you have to look at what the counter advances. It's unbelievable. And, uh, you know, call it Star Wars, call it uh, an arms race. It's who gets to the finish line first. Basically. Basically. And we know that um, somehow, I keep telling this to people in the next generation, I sound like an old man, but somehow, with the one above looking down, it seems that good usually wins over evil. Sometimes it takes a tremendous cost to get there, as we know. But uh, we have to remember that. This is not the first time that an international enemy is being faced. It's different, and because of the era we're in, it's it, you know the, the way it's being fought is very different, but it's not the first time it's been like this. But we can hasten the process 
by being alert, by being informed, by educating, by advocating, by making our voices heard, by keep reminding. And believe me, it's no more frustrating for me when I go to Washington, go to other places and try to, in Europe, and try to get them to pay attention to the things that, you know, are so obvious to us. And now we've had some big changes. The election in Venezuela could be a game changer in terms of Iran's presence, which was based there. And I think Cuba and Iran, I believe, will interfere with this outcome in Venezuela. Um, But uh, but this was a a popular expression in overthrowing Maduro, who was Chavez's uh, uh, successor. And the election in Argentina and the installation of uh, Macri this week as the new president. Very important developments. South America is ignored by everybody but Iran. That has tens of thousands of agents operating there all over in every country, up to Mexico, and along our border. Yeah. And I go ahead and uh, talk about the United States, and it's, um, uh, you know, how at the same time they're building up Iran as they try to defend against Iran. We then read that Palestinian prisoners released and deported to Gaza, Turkey, and Qatar as part of the Shalit deal are organizing their own terrorist cells in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Not, again, to criticize the Israeli government. They know a lot more than I do about how these deals should work and how they should go down and whether... It was worth exchanging, etc. But I feel it's always important to point out that those who are released, uh, it seems, um, many of them, I don't want to say all of them, many of them get involved in terror networks. And in this case, terror networks that are taking place outside of Israel. But target, uh, against Israel, because yeah. they operate because right. they're banned. Correct. And, and Israel does monitor. Yeah, because Israel thinks, I mean, because again, the impression is throw them out. They're not going to be able to, you know, have much influence. And then you see what happens when they start forming together outside of Israel. And uh, they form and they can create new cells and they can indoctrinate others. But, uh, and they are recidivists. There's no doubt some of the terrorist attacks that we've seen now were tied to people who have uh, been released, and, and the whole message uh, that that the PA has told young people is, look, you do it, you get caught, we'll get you out in the next release. In the meantime, your family gets a monthly stipend, etc. That's why the destruction of the houses of those who perpetrate these crimes is so important and often mm-hmm. criticized and ignored in the West. But there is a value to it, and, and the fact that Israel now has taken the preemptive step of when somebody's in the middle of an attack, they they shoot to 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 neutralize them, and whatever happens happens. But you know they, they get criticized until you find, and the headlines in the newspaper will say Palestinian you know killed until you find out that he had a machete in his hand and was stabbing and cutting people's uh, cutting people. Right, understood. All right, Malcolm, home line three Torahs tomorrow. It's Shabbos Chanukah. People want a word of hope and inspiration. You know that light. Light is the center of this entire holiday. I can only imagine when you combine the Shabbos light with the Hanukkah light, just how incredible a Shabbos it will be. What are your thoughts as we enter this auspicious day? You know what? That there's nowhere does it say who found the one vial of oil that made the, the Pach Shemin, that made the miracle of Hanukkah possible. They don't identify anywhere, not the Gemara, anywhere. It doesn't say who did it, because that's the real lesson of history that those who make the miracles possible are not the, those of us whose name appear in the press, etc. It's the people, every one of your listeners, all of those who strive each day, who go to Paris, who the Parisian Jews who stand up against the, the violence, and certainly the people we just talked about from the IDF and from the defense forces, security forces, who every day continue to make the miracle of Israel possible. And the Kaddish Baruch Hu is sending us the signals, that little coin, that seal, that 
it's not happenstance. You can't logically explain why for 2,000 years nobody saw those things laying in the park and all of a sudden now, and why this uh, seal and, and the coin that led to the finding of Accra. And uh, I was told yesterday um, that, you know, why one of the explanations why there's eight days of Hanukkah, they said, it, you know, the miracle was for seven days. He said the miracle was that you didn't have everybody rushing to take credit for having found a vial of oil. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Oren Rice to his credit. But it was um, it's a great insight in Bart that <laughs> one of the hundreds of explanations about why there's eight days. That's great. I love it. Uh, enjoy your Shabbos Hanukkah Rosh Chodesh, and we will uh, reconvene Bezrat Hashem next week. Uh, Thank the you. Listeners so. of a podcast, I'll be in California Sunday night. Ooh. Speaking there in LA. So California. I mean, they should say hello. Weather's uh, not good enough for you here? Come on. 60 degrees over uh, here. I, I spoke in Miami this week. Huh? I was there for about six hours, oh. and the weather in New York was better than Miami. <laughs> there you go. You never know. You never know. <laughs> Thank you, Malcolm. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Have a Hanukkah. Chagurim Sameach. A happy Hanukkah to everybody.